Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. Excited to welcome the founder of B-Ball Breakdown, Nick Halsman, or Coach Nick as we call him, to the Basketball Podcast. Coach Nick is the founder of B-Ball Breakdown, a popular online channel devoted to NBA analysis. He's been breaking down NBA games with slow motion freeze frames, arrows, and voiceovers for over eight years. Coach Nick has over 20 years of experience coaching players at every level, using the most cutting-edge techniques that ensure maximum output and efficiency. Coach Nick is also a regular contributor to The Athletic and has been featured on various podcasts and media outlets. He welcomes guests from all facets of basketball for in-depth discussions on everything from how your favorite team is running their offense to the latest trade rumors to cutting-edge training techniques and new fundamentals of basketball being developed. Coach Nick, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, I'm, I'm gracious for being here. Yeah, it's been a, been too long, but we've had so many conversations. We got to bring this one public. First of all, let me just thank you for being divergent and thinking differently and constantly challenging some of the norms, because I do really value that about how you approach things. And it's not about you or me or anyone else has to be right. It's just about let's let's stimulate thinking and get people to think differently. Yeah, I think it's also about like, let's let's get more optimal here. Let's figure out what we're doing, if it is the right way to do it and the best way to do it. So it's not like we're going to completely dismiss what's been doing, done for 100 years. It's just like, okay, there's what we did. You've trusted someone that taught you to do that from a long time ago. But maybe there's another way we can do this that would get all the things that you want and more. Kids will like it more. They'll develop better. Uh, all those things. But, you know, it's it always rooted in the notion that even back in the 80s, when I was being taught the game, uh, I always felt like some of these methods were archaic and, and didn't work as well as they could have. So that keeps me motivated to try and find the different versions of things to do. Well, it isn't amazing. Like as soon as the new iPhone comes out, everyone wants a new iPhone. But coaching knowledge, teaching knowledge, learning knowledge has updated tremendously over the last 30, 40 years. But generally, people want to coach the same way we did back in the 60s, back in the 50s. And a lot of the theory and procedures around the way we teach the game of basketball was developed during the World War. And those procedures don't apply, do they, to how we want to develop creative and free players? Well, we don't use leeches anymore to cure disease in medicine. So it's certainly, you know, you wouldn't want to do the same thing you did in 1920 or 30. Some people would say you're soft for not doing that, though, right, coach? Oh, well, you know, you know what, you know what toughness is? Toughness is knowing that you're more skilled than the other team. That's what I always think it is. It's like, I remember when I would play one-on-one against people who were better than me. And there was a certain sense of like almost a smirk on their face. They weren't like playing harder than me because no one played harder than I did. But they were in a relaxed sense of rhythm because they knew that they were more skilled because I spent way too much time running back and forth in a straight line at a predetermined distance. And I wasn't doing all the different skills and shooting and dribbling that I should have been doing. Yet, I would have told you I worked harder than anybody else. And so that's the, that's the rub there. And I've always tried to tap into, you know, I don't want it to be, you know, cocky or overconfident, but I feel like that toughness, that mental toughness is clearly coming from the time, from the, the moments when you realize that you have the skills that the other guy isn't going to be able to handle. And that that doesn't require the pseudo masculine, you know, uh, toxic masculinity stuff that we've been, been, you know, taught and drilled into us for all those years. So you're saying that if I show up on time, if I work extremely hard and I'm very competitive, I'm going to be in search of greatness. I, I, I no. I, I, by the way, I think that no, you might be disappointed. 
You yes. might so a lot of time outworks everybody. Yeah. And then you're doing archaic stuff and you don't develop. It's like, why? And so many of the coaches, you know, lament that the players don't buy into the culture. They're not. It's all about them having to come all the way toward the coach. And I always tell them, I say, listen, you're just going to be frustrated your whole career. If you don't understand that this is a meeting in the middle, you know, and like, in fact, I was just watching. Oh, my goodness. I, I guess we were telling me about somebody you were talking to coaching, in, you know, in, around you. Uh, I'll just light my coach on fire. My kid's coach. He's playing flag football now. And, you know, there's a kid on his team who is uh, clearly processes in a much different way than a typical kid. And like, you know, you get down and out is for him, he goes the opposite direction, you know. So you could just see the coach getting more and more frustrated and anger and disgust coming out instead of like you need to have multiple versions and multiple methods in your bag that you can pull out whenever you find kids who are having trouble understanding what you're trying to teach in a very calm and reasonable way. And I feel like so many coaches don't have that and they don't want to expand their bag. And as a result, yeah, they're just going to be frustrated the whole time. The kids are going to be frustrated. They're probably going to quit. And by the way, if it's an AAU program, you're, it's bad for business. They're going to stop paying you to coach them. Yeah, not not adapting to uh, modern times and engaging the players in the right way certainly is bad for business. And uh, to your example, I mean, look, there's a lot of volunteers. There's a lot of coaches doing it for all the right reasons, and they're not investing in their learning for a lot of reasons as well. But we're speaking to very open-minded audiences, we hope, who at least are considering the possibilities that there's better ways to do things. And that's why we're here today, to talk about a potential better way, which is the chase defense. Let's first start with what is the chase defense? Well, I, I almost don't feel like I want to talk about how I came up with it as well, and because it, it kind of moves together with that, which is uh, as you're studying offensive rating across year after year in the NBA, and I know it, it applies to the lower levels too, it just keeps going up and up at a pretty steady pace, especially in the three-point era. So what it was saying to me was that the way we're playing defense, the way we're teaching defense doesn't work, is not working anymore. If any other you know field, you know, you'd see this kind of results year over year, you'd know you have to change something if you want to improve that, you know, that that specific area. So I started to think to myself a couple of years ago, I said, well, what, what could be radical here? What, 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 you know, everything's been done. There's two, three, one, two, two, three, two, amoeba, whatever you want, man to man. We have all these defenses already. It's been a long time since we've had to develop these things. So the, the thing that jumped out of my mind was, well, we, we haven't really seen playing behind the ball. And so I said, well, let's look at this. Maybe this could be a viable way. And if we remember in 2019, the Utah Jazz guarded James Harden three quarters behind, not quite a caboose, but almost that way. And it, it shaved 10 points per game off his uh, average in the playoffs that year. They didn't win the series for a lot of other reasons, but it certainly had a limit to what Harden was doing. And it was also disruptive. So I was like, OK, that's interesting. Then I sort of started to search around. I'd get, you know, upper level players I could get as often as I could on the court. And we started experimenting with, okay, what alignments is, is this a zone? Is it a man? What can we do to make this work? And I kind of went from there. And that's where we, you know, the origins of the chase defense came about. And in the very beginning, even before we kind of got it to where it is now, which I think is functioning really well. But even in the very beginning, I had coaches who would have kicked me out of the gym for suggesting this, scratching their chins. And, and thinking, you know, there's something here. Like there was clearly something going on that re really made the offense get into a chaotic mess. So you mentioned the Utah example versus Harden. That's the one that stood out to me. But then the other one you make is this analogy to chasing a def an offensive player from behind in recovery on pick and roll in drop coverage. 
which is probably if coaches are visualizing at home, it's a similar situation to that in terms of at least at the point of the ball, those two defenders. Now, the whole idea of the chase defense is somewhat that you eliminate the pick and roll. You eliminate the three-point shot and you eliminate the pick and roll. Both are things that are obviously a big part of basketball in the modern game. So talk to us a little bit about kind of that philosophy of taking away the three and taking away, obviously, the pick and roll. Well, I love what you said about uh, drop coverage, because in reality, half of the possessions in the NBA resemble the chase defense. The, you know, I'm just getting to the, getting to the chase, <laughs> no pun intended, because so it's not as radical as you might think. And if you're running, if you're running a drop coverage at any other level, yeah, you're going to be behind the ball at some point. The center is going to be in front of the ball containing, and the other three guys are pretty much zoning up. So uh, it's almost like ice defense on the pick and roll, where they jump to the side to force the guy away from the pick. Well, if you think about it, it's another you know quarter turn, and then you're all the way behind. So it really, there are ways to introduce the chase, which doesn't make it seem as radical as you might think. And you're right. When you play behind the ball the way I want them to, you cannot set a ball screen. There is no way. I have coaches now who are saying, well, what if they go behind the defender? Well, okay, you want to have the ball handler like going backwards to dribble and trying to run his man who's behind him into that pick. Fantastic. I would love to see that. I had a buddy of mine say, well, what if he gets to the side of him and then like the ball handler basically defensive slides to his left to run the guy in there? I mean, like none of that makes sense. It It doesn't work. So you basically, yes, eliminating the the one play everybody wants to run. And I don't even think I meant to do this when I thought about it. All I, The original idea was, let's get radical and what we can do to change this, and that would be playing behind. Out of that, I realized, oh, you know what? You can't set a ball screen. This is amazing. Now, no one in their right mind is going to shoot a pull-up three-pointer with somebody breathing down their neck, I don't think. That said, the team in Missouri I was working with uh, just last week uh, played against a, a bigger, better team in a scrimmage. And dude did a two-dribble sidestep three from about 25 feet and just buried it. I'll take that, I guess. So he, he proved me wrong, but I don't think we're going to see many of those. It's the only one I've seen. And so then, by the way, when you're closing out, I mean, we got to talk about some of the, of the individual stuff here too, but when you're closing out, it's basically the same thing as running the players off the three-point line because you're trying to get behind them anyway. So any of the catch and shoot threes that might seem open to a shooter because they're anticipating a, ch- a, stoppy, a choppy step closeout, of which I don't think are really a fundamental play anyway. But because it's not happening, we teach a hockey stop to get you know right behind the guy. They're not going to feel so comfortable on those catch and shoots, and they're probably going to take the bait a bunch of those times to start driving instead. So you're basically eliminating a lot of the catch and shoot threes. You're eliminating, I, I would almost say, every you know pull up three off the dribble, and then there are no pick and rolls. So now you're starting to realize that the offense is not going to resemble much of what you'd recognize when it's going up against it. Chase defense, prevent most three-pointers and all pick and rolls. It's a b-ball breakdown. For those that want the visuals as we talk about this, go to that breakdown Coach Nick did. It's really good. It explains it pretty simply. So the part to me, like every defense gives up something. So what is this defense giving up? Great question. It is a zone. So, uh, and by the way, just I want to give full credit to Dean Smith. So I had played around with um, different variations uh, from whole cloth. I tried to invent it on my own. And we were getting closer and closer, but there was a couple of rotations that weren't working. So I finally, I looked at Dean Smith's point zone, which is very obscure these days, considering that Dean Smith is like the, you know, the most well-known college coach of all time. But he, I, I decided to use that because it did resemble what I'd already started to build on my own. So there are some weaknesses. I, I, I hesitate to say them because like, I, I don't want the guys to figure it out. They go up against it. But I'll, I'll tell them because you know what? 
it, it doesn't matter if we know if we rotate and we uh, adjust properly. So if you want to do like a power alignment, which is three out and two in, which is what we used to see back when you and I were playing, you know, there's something about and not necessarily on the post. The post isn't really open against this, but it's the slot or the dunker spot. If you if you fill both of those, it, you know, the alignment is, is similar to one, three, one. So the guy on the bottom does have his hands full and has to make some decisions down there to cover that. And because we're letting the ball handler dribble to like the elbow before he gets contained, because remember, the whole goal is to get him to pull up to shoot long twos and floaters with a hand up. There is some, there are, there's a seam in there uh, a little bit that could be, you know, exploited a little bit. The bounce passes stuff to the, to the, the dunker spot, but there are ways to adjust so they could, they catch it far enough out where it's not a layup. They can't get right to the basket and they'll be under duress. And then the other one it, where I'm, I was most concerned with, but really haven't seen it too much, I think, is screening the X5 who is in contain mode. And that would be like a, almost like Spain pick and roll. Cause it's not a ball screen. You're screening the, the drop. Or like a Gortat screen almost where you're screening him out of the play, right? It's, ex it's exactly the Gortat screen in the lane, which is a dangerous thing because you only have three seconds. If the referees are aware, which you never know if they are. And, and it's not even that that screen is going to kill you from the ball handler. That, that is actually really well covered naturally by the alignment. It's the role where if the X5 who gets screened becomes a statue and figures, I just got screened, I must be, I'm dead, I don't move anymore, then we're in trouble. But all he's got to do is just take a step back and get underneath that guy because there's no hedging. We don't care. We're not going, we're not worried about three-pointer coming off of a pick and roll there. If he wants to pull up from 15 feet and, we, and he kind of steps behind and puts the hand up, that's fine. Do you know what, what Clay Thompson shot from 15 to 19 feet last year? 43.9%. Curry was at 44. Now, I know there's other guys who are a little bit higher, 45, 46, but those are the best of the best. You know, Devin Booker and all those kind of guys, they'll shoot 46% maybe. If you get a hand up at those at the lower levels, it'll be less than that. It'll be 45, it'll be 44. And that means you don't even have to break 30% on your threes to match that and come out ahead. And so that's the math that we're working with here. And uh, so those are the two things. But uh, again, the points per possession on all the scrimmages and all the games we've had so far has been extremely uh, promising. So generally what we're saying is play. you're playing behind the ball, forcing penetration, and then the other four players are in some type of zone alignment. And the goal is we're obviously giving up some type of contested mid-range. We're not giving up layup. We're not giving up three as a general visual for everyone. There's a lot of nuances clearly, which we can't get into here, but that's the general thing. Now, the other part that you've mentioned a few times is there are actually teams that are doing this. This isn't theoretical. There are teams that are applying this now. So talk without, you don't have to be specific, but talk to us about some of those experiences of sharing this with teams. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I did a video about a month ago uh, on YouTube. It's gotten watched 120,000 times now or something like that. And out of that, I've done 50 or 60 Zoom calls with coaches from all around the world at every level to break it down and explain to them because the you know the video was an overview. I didn't want to give away the whole thing, but I wanted to give the taste. And so it's, enough people responded that I've li literally been able to do that many Zooms with us sharing my screen and showing them the drills and the breakdown drills, everything we did. And out of that, I visited two colleges last week where I helped them. And they basically were as so gracious. They allowed me to basically be like the head coach of their team for two days. I, I mean, this is unprecedented. Imagine a college coach. One was NAIA level. They're going to be NAIA next year. They're right now the NCCAA, the uh, National Christian Collegiate Association. So, but, but imagine that. A guy a little bit older than me, so old school. I was even shocked I was even there because I couldn't believe he was that out of the box with it. But he just, he's basically like blew the whistle, called him in, and just said, here you go. And I, and I literally ran them through it. And then I went to New York and did the same thing for a Division II team. 
And the Division II team just beat a Division I team in a scrimmage using this defense 20 times in the second half. So, but out of those two things, and I filmed the whole thing and I got it all, I was going through all the footage. I was already developing drills that really helped. So what I learned in Missouri, I was able to adjust and add two or three drills from New York and it really helped. And so it really started looking great there. So uh, I'm excited about this group think because I have a Discord server where all the coaches who have done the Zooms with me are all now part of, and they're free to upload their videos and diagrams and just, just a running text conversation as well. So we're going to really uh, rapidly uh, develop better and better techniques for how to teach this and how to run it. And I, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think, you know, by, you know this, by this time next year, it'll be even better and there'll be, I'm sure, even more people running to run it. I know it's a common knock on you and maybe me to a certain extent is that we're not coaching. So like this is all theoretical. But what I argue back to people, and I will argue this on your behalf. What you are able to do is you are able to innovate somewhat because you have low pressure reps. You have these opportunities to mess around. You have these opportunities to screw around and you have these opportunities to figure things out. Whereas, again, if you're coaching and you're getting paid, it's really hard to do that in defense of them. So it comes back to people like you to challenge traditional norms and to be able to think differently, to be able to kind of push some of these ideas forward. And what I know about you is that's part of the fun. That's part of what you love about this, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, listen, if it doesn't work, if it, if it explodes in a, in a million pieces and whatever, then OK, that's fine. At least we found something out. But so far, everything has been, you know, it's been very, very positive. And by the way, we don't play behind in the corners, just in case you're trying to visualize that as well. The two things it's easy to visualize is the X5 is in the lane and it just stays between the ball and the basket the whole time. It's, very, it's the easiest position you'll ever teach in any sport. And we don't go behind in the corners. You know, by the way, part of the problem would be is if you're in the corners and you're playing behind, you'd be out of bounds, most likely. And if you touch the player, it'd be a violation. It'd be a foul because you can't be intentionally out of bounds uh, on defense and then, and then be in the play. So, so that's another one of those things where we can actually get a couple of like almost traditional ideas as well with, with the regular de de the defense uh, stuff. And, but here's another thing I, dis I discovered that might blow your mind, Chris, is that after doing all these Zooms and then getting on the court and doing it as well, because be, yeah, you're right, it becomes re in reality very quickly. The theory becomes reality after you do this a few times. What we discovered was, is that you can play behind the ball in any zone and almost nothing changes. So think about a 2-3 and the ball's in the wing and the guard is in front of the ball. If he jumps behind the ball, the other four people don't care. They're still playing the same zone the same way they'd ever they'd play anyway. So what could very well come out of this is not necessarily the chase defense, but maybe chase mode, where at any time you can be playing a regular in front of the ball and just jump behind. And then suddenly the offense will have no idea when you're going to do this. You could do it after the second pass. You can do it in the middle of the touch, you know, where the guy's got it for a second, and then you jump behind. In fact, that might be, for the higher levels, the way we have to do it because some of these guys are so good that if you're going to give them the lane, you know, a drive, even though the X5 is there to contain, if you're going to give them unfettered, you know, catch and drive like that, as it's often, you might have some problems. So it might have to be, okay, I'm here, and then I jump behind. But either way, um, if you can use that as a in a more of a random fashion, then the offense will never have a clue on how to get comfortable or what they're going to do. And I think that's really exciting to me because now, you know, it's, they're not comfortable. They're not doing their, their individual moves. They've been practicing with their trainer all that time. It becomes a whole other level of uh, confusion. And the last part might be that invariably, there's going to be two guys on every team that every coach plays at any level who aren't really great at driving who are going to take the bait and they're going to think, oh, this is great. I'm open. And now a dribble and a half into that drive, they realize this is really not going to end well.
So first of all, if you're chasing, are you trying to recover? Okay. So, okay. Another part of that is, and I've been talking to refs a lot about this, because I believe that when you're behind the ball, the refs will give you some leeway to have your hand in the lower back of the player. Because remember, it's all about impeding progress. That's what their whole game is on the ball and the defense and the hand checking and all that stuff. So if you're behind, you're not impeding progress already. So there is leeway. And everyone's been pretty much like, yeah, there's, there is. As long as you're not like shoving the guy down from behind, I think you're okay. So you have one hand in the lower back and the other hand's reaching, reaching, reaching behind, trying to, you know, just keep them in the ball in the other hand or to keep them thinking. Because if they don't have pressure on the ball, then we're in trouble. Just like any zone, you know, if you don't really pressure the ball much, they're going to be able to pick it apart. So I'm not sure if that answers the question, but yes, you are chasing um, uh, from the perimeter, the, the, the top and the wings uh, with that lower hand on the back, ideally, if the guy isn't you know, already on his way. And um, But at some point, as you get closer toward the free throw line, you decouple and let the X5 kind of handle it into the lane. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That answers that. Uh, the other part you mentioned about obviously doing this within a zone, I thought was brilliant because to me, defense is all about disruption. I mean, we're trying to disrupt the offense in some way, and that's all good defenses. So to me, this is even like scouting report specific. Doing this to a non-player is just as powerful and somewhat as not guarding them, right? Because it mm-hmm. could mess with them thinking, oh, I've got an advantage. I've got to go attack. And you would get non-dribblers, non-attackers, non-decision makers driving, right? Oh, I mean, there's so many of the catch-and-shoot guys who are good, like the 3 and D. And yeah, they, they want to just be able to catch and shoot. They not have to deal with this. And yet they also might want to prove to their coach that they are, they have other skills, right? Okay, well, let's find out, <laughs> you know, let, let's get behind you and dare you to do it. Now, again, there are so many, like the more exciting thing for me would be you get this going the first year, it's working really well. You get five or six guys coming back the next year. Now we can really start to have some fun with it because at this point you can say, okay, those three guys will get behind and those two guys we won't, right? Or on this, whoever catches the ball the second pass, we get behind. You can really get fun and, and comp- not complicated. Uh, what's the word? Just varied with it in ways that the more they, they master it, the more random you can get it to be where it almost seems like, gosh, how do they know to get behind me when in reality it was just like, I just did it because I felt like I had a chance to get behind. So that's the beauty of that, of that whole situation. And again, we're taking advantage of, you know, players that are going to want to, you know, do things that they're not comfortable with, but it, but it seems like it's open. In fact, you know, the, the team in New York who uh, was running it, they didn't even quite get behind enough for me, but the wing guys were kind of stepping out of the way and sort of like, Ole, like, please go. And the guy was like froze. He didn't know what he didn't know what to do. You know, you'd think that they would go. So in reality, there's a there's a freeze thing going on uh, with some of the offensive players too, where they're not taking the bait. But now the clock's running at least at the college level, and and they're not getting you know any kind of good shot. Uh, I have another thing. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, let's talk about this because it kind of talks about you know how we want to treat players and how we how we use uh, language. You know, I would probably say that most of the frustration that coaches have on the defensive end is when players get beat by closeouts. And a lot of times the coaches who are really, I guess we classify them as yellers, uh, you know who you are out there, you know, get angry and yell and scream. And they coach like they, it should be a shutout. And the problem is, is that the other team, after they score, no matter how easy or how hard, how hard it is, they're going to do it another 24 times in that game. So it's like, are you really going to react that way on every single one of them? But when you play chase defense, you eliminate all of that. And so what happens is, is that it actually becomes fun on two different levels. One, for the last 100 years, the way we taught defense was all about limiting your athletic ability. Step sliding, choppy step closeouts, all of that stuff. This is limiting your athletic ability. 
I'm trying to unlock it. I want, we're running to everywhere, right? And we're not closing out. We're doing a step hockey stop, which is a really explosive move that like the really good defenders do. They don't, they don't close out like we all teach. And so what you're doing is creating a different kind of environment around the defensive end. And I'll say this, after going for like two hours hard in the in New York at the college level, it was a late practice. So we were finished. It was already like 7 p.m. You know, it was dark out. It's like, you know, we were going really hard. And the coach blows the whistle to bring everybody in the middle. And I swear to God, every one of them said, coach, we want to keep playing this. Let us keep playing. And we gave them another 10 or 15 minutes. And I was astonished. You never would see that in that situation. And part of it was is because I'm sitting there cheering them on the whole time because I'm like, as soon as they get behind, yes, as soon as they take a mid-range jumper, I don't care if it goes in. No more of the result-based thing. We're talking about process. If they hit a, a 16 or 17-foot jumper with a hand up, who cares? That's perfect. We're going to, in the long run, be much better off for that. And I think that that kind of energy was getting infused to how they play, and they wanted to keep doing it more versus the barking out and the orders and the limiting of athletic ability, all the things that people hate about defense. I think we're getting rid of that now. And I know that these young guys who are really athletic and women too, who want to run around and, and really just disrupt things, this plays right into that psyche. And I think that, that, that that's going to bleed into all the defensive things they do. I love it. I love it. And you mentioned closeouts. We could do a whole podcast on closeouts. And, you know, I, again, closeouts, it's, it's, it's a technique that's trained in isolation that people expect to be able to be applied in context in the game when they only train it in isolation. That's the biggest problem for me. So this removes that aspect of it because you're constantly forcing the drive and then people are making decisions based on that. I love that. The other thing I want to say is like, as you're talking about this now, you and I talked about this two years ago, I think in Las Vegas, when you first talked to me about it, but when you first talked about it, it seemed like, okay, let's go. And then as you learn it, you go, okay, wait a minute, this isn't as wacky as you think. This is not as wacky as you think at all. And you see this in Europe, you see it a little bit in college basketball last year, the goalie defense, where one player is essentially like the X5, is everyone's playing man essentially, and one player's just standing at the charge circle. So that already exists in some form, and you're just making it a little bit more obvious that we're forcing it to the goalie. Now, do you call X5 something specific? No, we just call him X5. You know, yeah, I, I'd say he's got the windshield wiper role because he just basically, you know, goes like a windshield wiper wherever the ball goes. But yeah, no, I mean, a goalie is not a bad term. I, I probably we could use that real, real easily. Well, and, and to me, thinking about this from a high school coach or a youth coach or obviously an AU coach's perspective is that this is really adaptable to personnel because we don't have perfect personnel. We right. know that when you coach high school, you don't have perfect personnel. So you can put players in situations where, as you said, they can have fun and be engaged defensively because they can make an impact. Sure. And by the way, the, the, the concept behind the zone is really where the four players are rotating in a circle around the X5. So you're going to actually end up being on, on either side of the court, depending on skip passing, right? Which is a novel concept. And it's not the easiest thing, but when you know how to teach it properly, which I believe I've developed and I can help, you know, like people calling in the Zooms and showing them how to do it, you, you can get it pretty quick. Because I think most of the coaches are going to say, ah, I can't expect them to be playing the one way they have their entire lives and all of a sudden the complete opposite there in the next possession. And I'm like, well, you ask them to kind of do that when you go from zone to man and man to zone. It's not exactly as radical as I'm talking about, but it's it's pretty different. 
And no one has a problem with that. So, you know, and, and a lot of times if there aren't a lot of skip passing, there, there's a lot of opportunities in my zone where you don't have to do a lot of running. There's moments where it's calm and you like actually do less. And sometimes players are, I have to kind of coach them to, you know, you're running all the way over there, but you, you don't have to. Like you, you got to stay over here and, and just kind of relax almost because otherwise the backside is going to be vulnerable. So there's a lot of those opportunities there. So if they understand the concept behind it, and there and there are buddies, you have your partner. We have to be across from. So if you ever get lost, where's your partner? Okay, I'm going to angle myself across from them, and you always know where you are. So it, it actually isn't so complicated when you think about it, and you teach it properly. It's not. And what I've learned in 25 plus years of coaching is common sense always transfers for players. And another part that I think is common sense is the positioning of your, I don't know what you call them, the, the wing players yeah, the wings. in the point zone where they're playing a closed stance. And I always thought this made more sense, a closed stance to the corner so they can see more of the play. Well, yeah, they're facing the basket. It's how I yeah. would describe it, you know, yeah. and which is what we saw in the Miami Heat was doing, we're doing this. I, in fact, I got to ask the coach, I forgot how that, that came about because we saw Kyle Lowry in the forward in the two, three, and then Duncan Robinson, the other forward facing each other. And suddenly, and you never had issues with guys cutting baseline for lobs. Part of it is because if you put a little pressure on the ball handler, it's not so easy to throw a lob 25 feet on target on time. You know, it's like, you know, things can go wrong, but it really does eliminate a lot of any kind of potential screening actions on them. And they can just see the floor a lot better. And that, I love that because I always hated having to be like a guard in the two, three and relying about uh, on uh, guys behind me to call out cutters and a loud gym. It's hard to hear. You just can't see anything. And the guy on top, by the way, in, the, in this defense is also facing the basket. So he becomes like a middle linebacker and uh, or a safety or whatever you want to call him. It's like, you know, deflecting passes and knocking guys off their lines, trying to, you know, keep them from cutting to the high post. So it's a, there's a lot of areas where you can, you know, have those guys who are very disruptive and want to use their energy on defense. They, they get the opportunity to. And then also most of the closeouts that you do do as you're going to get behind, it's the, the closest guy. It's like pretty obvious who is supposed to get it. And when you're facing that way, it's even more. You, you can just tell everyone else is farther away. I'm, it's me. I'll get it, you know. Coaches, a brief interruption from the podcast to talk about Hoopsalytics. With basketball season approaching quickly, do you have an affordable, powerful stats and analytics system in place yet? Rather than overspending on the same old antiquated stat system, you can get cutting-edge video link stats and deep analytics at around half the price you're paying now. Hoopsalytics analysts will break down games for you so you can instantly measure the effectiveness of your players, lineups, and player combinations. And you can add tracking for your unique plays, sets, and actions to see what's working and what needs to be improved. You can even measure shot quality and things like contested and uncontested shots to improve your offensive points per possession. Features like interactive shot charts, game timeline visualizations, assist maps, and more makes Hoopsalytics an invaluable resource for coaches of all levels. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you save money and make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball. What, what are the main possession outcomes that you're finding out of this? So, you know, obviously pull-ups from mid-range are, are, are I mean, are, are, are shot in basketball, the long two, right? Yeah, yeah. There is a notion of like corner threes. There's a little susceptibility to that. 
But part of the problem was we weren't we weren't drilling the wings properly. They need to get some of those skip passes to the corner, which might not. It, it's interesting. Imagine if you're like free throw line extended, and then the ball gets thrown to the corner, and you get that closeout, right? Um, that's a different angle than you would think. Normally, that would be coming from the basket area. But the way this zone works is the closeout from the basket area would be so far away, it would be the, that person's on the other side of the midline. He'd never make it there. So once we started drilling the corner, uh, sorry, the wings getting the corner, that cleaned up a lot of that in New York, a lot of those uh, catch-and-shoot threes that we were giving up in Missouri. And so that made me feel a lot better. And they were getting steals now on the side of kickouts that seemed open, but they were coming down from, again, weird angles that the offense is not used to. The guy basically in the three-point line, you know, as if they were an offensive player facing the basket and then just stealing the ball to the, the kick to the corner. You know, the cool thing that we also noticed is that, you know, if I'm on the wing waiting for the ball, well, the, the defender on that wing would probably be right next to them. And so you kind of feel weird. You're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you like next to me or like behind me or like to my side? They might start creeping in a little bit thinking, OK, I'm going to take some space. And well, guess what? Now they're in front of the three point line and we've compressed the offense inside the three point line. Spacing is worse. If they want to shoot that 15 footer or 18 footer with a hand up or a guy contesting from behind. Oh, hallelujah. That, you know, whenever we get a shot like that, it's like, you know, in, in It's a Wonderful Life, another angel gets its wings because that is exactly what we want. And in fact, the NBA players I talk to who are the great shooters, they don't complain about closeouts that are coming right at them and the choppy step, hands high, or even the ones that are in the air. What bother them, they say, is when the guy's behind them and he's reaching the side of them and the hands are in around in their peripheral vision. They can't quite get a handle where they are. That's what bothers them. And this is what this defense does all over the place is this contest from behind. So, so those are the things. Those are the the areas that we've been seeing. Is that so? Corner three action a little bit maybe, but then you know the other things are just you know floaters. Do we get the hand up or not on the floater? And that's really is, the- is it forcing a lot of turnovers? Oh yeah, yeah. That's what I would have thought because it, it gets them going so fast that even when they make the nice pass to the guy down low and under the basket, I, I keep seeing it over and over again. Good players fumble the catch. They're, they're too much in a hurry, even good players, and trying to get the layup quick, right? So it's happened enough where I have to say it's got to be the defensive effect. It can't be anything else because it wasn't a couple of random times. It was a consistent thing, which I, I'm not ecstatic about. I hate to see you know the ability to get a bounce pass for a layup, but – it's because it's so hyper fast that uh, they're they're not able to finish those plays. And I'll say this, uh, Chris, I'm sure you've seen drills, offensive drills, where you start with the defender behind the guy, the behind the ball handler, right? Yep. So yeah. what we're advantage. Yeah. What we're really doing is we're making the offense a lot better. So after two days in New York with this D2 team running it, you know, they started getting good at picking it apart, right? They were finding some of those dunker spot bounce passes. They were finding a lob here or there, a kick out. But the only way they were doing that was with the most supreme ball movement and accurate passing and timing and cutting. And it was like incredible offense. So it forced the offense of which is not going to be used to doing this, right? In theory, when they go up against other teams, it really made the offense so much better. And in our drills that we begin the process to learn how to play behind, which is a skill that nobody has, it's going to make your ball handlers better. Any kind of pressure, and I think you'll back me up on this, any kind of pressure out of the norm that they have to deal with while doing a familiar skill like ball handling will make them better. And so that's maybe that's what the legacy ends up being is you're just going to make your offense really, really much better in a, in a, in a quicker time. 
the other thing for me is that obviously we've got to talk about how do they contest the shot from behind? That would be probably the initial part about potentially fouling from behind, trying to get too much pressure from behind. So talk to us about that. What are some of the teaching points in that way? So that's a really good point. You know, we we you don't often see like in drop coverage. I know Trey Young was getting good at jumping kind of almost backwards and drawing those fouls. And they and they adjusted the rules to forbid that from happening. And other than him, you don't always see the fouls. Right. If you have the lower hand in the back, uh, the hand in the lower back, um, that could be a breaking mechanism for you a little bit where, you know, you, you can just sort of you can feel and you're more connected to the ball handler. You know, when they're stopping. So that's that's my bigger worry is sort of the running over them if they stop quickly. The contesting from behind, I don't think is that much of a specialized skill. I think you can jump in the air. You're kind of like you're already behind the guy and you kind of put your hand up on the you know in the side of there and the, just in the peripheral vision. I, I don't I have yet to see anybody foul on those on those pull-up jumpers for the three dribble pull-ups, right? Now, the, really, the, the main contest we end up having on those is the X5, right? He's the one who's there to get a hand up. And again, just interrupt the field of vision a little bit even. We see we saw Luke Cornett doing this, right? Uh, the Cornett contest uh, for the Celtics, where he would simply jump from the bat near the basket on a wide-open three-pointer, and he put his hands up in the air. And there's I interviewed him last year, and you can watch the video. There seems to be some analytics that are that that show that the expected value is lower or the expected result is lower than what the expected value should be on the wide open three. Imagine that, by the way, if we discover that you can jump up from any, like, you know, 20 feet away from the guy and then disrupt his vision a little bit. And that would be be good enough as a closeout. We would never have to close out again. Right. You could just about play everybody like, you know, around the lane and, and whatever. But nonetheless, there is some effect, I think. Now, if you get closer, it's a little bit different, obviously. But but we haven't seen any issues with that. And I feel like all I want is a contest. It's when you get your hand up. And again, we're taking the result out of this. It's a process. And if you can latch on in the process, you get buy-in and you, you remove the anger and disgust and, and, and d- depression, you know, that you can develop over getting scored on because you know you got exactly what you wanted them to do. Have you evolved it to the point that you're figuring out things to do within scouting report to be able to modify for specific players with specific skills? Yeah. So that's what we mentioned earlier about, um, you know, you play behind on a certain player and you play in front of other players. So the only notion here is like if the player is so good, do you play in front and just play your regular zone when he has the ball and then you get behind everybody else, which could very well be, you know, antithetical to what you'd think. Because the way they played Harden was behind, and that he was obviously the you know the the fulcrum of that entire offense. So in my mind, I I, I think it's fun. I don't want to you know not play behind everybody. I want everybody to have that shot and and get behind and really you know be disruptive as possible. The interesting thing, another part of that was some coaches will talk about zone and if the, if the x5 in their zone has to play a man you know all of a sudden the ball gets to the high post whatever everybody else goes man to man that's a really cool concept to go from zone to man the problem is in the chase that pass from the guard to the high post will, will probably happen on the first pass because that'll be open we're kind of giving them that and then then you go to man to man that's not fun right i, I want to be able to play chase so in my mind, I'd much rather just have the X5 play, you know, play the man there. Everyone else maintains their zone. And if it gets kicked out again, then we're right back into our chase. With the X1, by the way, if it's a high post, you know, whatever, X1 can kind of come and, and, and be disrupted from behind a little bit as well. And, and parenthetically, you know, another popular action that teams love to run now is like what a drive to the elbow, jump stop, pivot, kick back for a three. It's always a safe pass backwards, right? Not anymore. <laughs> You're not going to get that pass uh, against this defense. So all those things kind of play into it. And I almost feel like the scouting reports 
You know, I remember, I think it was, was it John Wooden talked about how they scouted, you know, it was early in his, you know, tenure at UCLA and they had, they went to New York to play in, you know, some, you know, in, in Madison Square Garden and they did this detailed scouting report of the team they had seen the night before and they got so in their head, so nervous or whatever that they lost the game because they weren't playing freely. And that's the last time they ever did like a really detailed scouting report. Because in reality, it's like, all right, what would you really adjust these days? You don't want them to catch the ball on the elbow. Well, we probably don't want anyone to catch the ball on the elbow, right? You don't want middle penetration. We don't, we don't want anybody to penetrate middle. So I, I almost feel like, if, you know, if you have your clear defensive principles, like, you know, like no middle for me, then the scouting report becomes less and less important because it's doesn't it's going to be the same scouting report for every team you ever play. Love that. And, uh, you know, it's like scouting reports where it's like, we've got to box out. Well, obviously, like... Oh, you want to get into box outs? We don't need to write that on the scout, do we? We have to box out. Anyway, speaking of boxing out, I I think another myth is that zones don't rebound as well as man-to-man, and that's just something that we just share constantly. There's bad man rebounding teams, there's good rebounding teams, right, et cetera, et cetera. But talk to me about rebounding responsibilities within this. What are the goals in terms of that? So X5 and X4 are almost always, you know, in X5 certainly is in the lane. X4 is usually somewhere along the baseline nearby, and you want him to be, you know, or them to be, you know, one that it can't be the, short, the shortest player. So you already got a decent base there. What I love about this, though, is that X2 and X3 can be running in like they're offensive rebounders to get the rebound. And, you know, when you're running quickly, you have a lot more momentum to jump up high and grab those rebounds. So that's exciting to me. And, in fact, what we've kind of been developing more recently is the weak side wing is the one who does it. And the other wing who is probably contesting the shot is now in a good position to get a run out. And we're seeing that a lot. So in Scotland, my guy, Coach Ross, is out there. He's gotten he's played five, six, seven games already because their schedule is different there. In a it's a it's a semi-pro league. And there he doesn't just to give you uh, he brought it up to me. He goes, you know, we're getting a lot of these runouts out of this because of the X1 who's like behind everybody on the shot. And and then I started looking at the footage. I'm like, you know, it's not I'm not even a run out. It is literally like rebound, one dribble, and then it's a 45, 50 foot pass, and they catch the layup right away. So if you're running this this defense, you better work on those layups because you don't want to blow those when you get them. And they're not always that easy, right? You're looking back to catch it, and then you got to find the basket and shoot it again. But 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 that was the what were we talking about? Oh yeah, rebounding. So I haven't seen it anything worse or better than any other zone. And I I have a feeling you're right. It feels like they give up more uh, offensive rebounds. But I have a feeling it's probably negligible when you look at the actual rebound. Probably because they're just more obvious. Like if you give up a rebound in a zone, it's because nobody took care of that responsibility. Right. And, and I don't know. And meanwhile, like man to man. So like, you know, the, the big thing about boxing out, if you follow me on Twitter, we, we get into these arguments all the time. But, uh, you know, the traditional box out. I see- follow you, but I don't get into the arguments. How about that? Yeah, good for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an argument; it's a conversation. It's part of right? your brand. It's part of your brand. I'm trying to help. It's what I end up. I have to usually end on. I'm just here to help. Let me know when you're ready. That's how I usually have to end those. But, but you know, the idea that you'd be, you know, in a man-to-man, and then when the shot goes up, you are going to turn your back to the basket, find this person, armbar on him, pivot, and then look up and try and find the ball. Every time I see an offensive rebound, it's exactly because that happens. 90% of the offensive rebounds are because the guy, all he had to do was keep his eye on the ball the whole time and then go after it. And I know I wasted so much time when we had problems with the rebounding all, you know, throughout my high school career as a coach. And the day I finally said, you know what, we're just going to have them move randomly and then throw the ball there and say, you just go get it. It, it solved our rebounding problems overnight because no more of this. You know, I went to the Jim Calhoun, you know, clinics where he, he just shows, oh, this is how you're going to box out because he did this in 1940 or 50. Uh, it's ridiculous. You cannot take your eye off the ball like that for three seconds while the ball's in the air. It's insane. 
So, you know, and then the guys argue, well, Kevin Love, he's a great boxer out, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I'll show you. And I would show Kevin Love never took his eye off the ball. He would never like face the guy, arm bar, pivot. That's not, he's not boxing out. He just goes after the ball. And the only problem with that is, is that you would think it would be a, oh, thanks coach. I really appreciate it. I didn't, I didn't realize that. That's a really good piece of information. The best case scenario is they just kind of disappear and never, you know, re- respond again. And the worst one is they don't even believe the video in front of them. But nonetheless, we we persist. Well, coaches spend an obsessive amount of time. Closeout's an example. The boxout's an example. Talking about technique, when really what they're talking about most of the time is perception and decision, which is what you're connecting for us right there. It's like the ability to be able to perceive the ball and then make a decision to go get the ball is the most important part of rebounding, whereas we get obsessed with the technique of physically making contact and boxing out, which is sometimes a part of it, but it's not always a part of it. And the value is obviously go get the ball. Well, so Brian, Brian McCormick makes a really great point about that because he says if you're in your proper position when the shot goes up because you're in a good defensive principles, then you don't need to go find the guy. Like you can just reach over or you're right yeah. there and you got contact with him, right? Uh, generally between them and the basket. Yeah. So generally, you should already kind of be in that position as it is. And again, you could box out with that, like, you know, your butt back and pushing them out. That's fine. Just don't take your eyes off the ball and ever track it the entire time and then go after it. God darn it. Like, I, I remember coaches would be really excited when the ball would drop on the floor because they were all pushing everybody back. That just seems a little bit extreme, you know, because you probably don't want the ball to touch. And who knows what happens once it hits the Well, ground. and it slows down your transition. So I never understood that one. Absolutely. But great, great in theory and a drill in isolation. This coach believes his new defense is the future of basketball. Article in Forbes magazine as well for coaches to check out. Coach, I got to say the best part about this defense in my mind is it takes the offense out of their offense. You can't run an offense against this. You've got to be very conceptual and you've got to figure things out because it's constantly changing what's happening within the environment you're playing against this defense. And to me, that's a that's a huge win. And that, that's what going back to what I mentioned, how it's going to make your offense better. Like, even if you don't want to run this defense, right? If you do it in practice, you are going to make, you wouldn't believe, I, I have footage, I got to try and dig it out because it's like a 50 minute clip. I got to go find all the possessions, but there were possessions out there. Yeah. Where it was, the ball movement was so amazing out of all of that. And it forced them to do that. So and I was actually kind of getting into that as well. Like, wow, this is amazing. And even though I want the defense to win in those situations, you had to marvel at some of those passes and some of the movement that they were able to get out of that which we can only help you, you know, when you end up playing against other teams who are playing, you know, conventional defenses that are still trying to put pressure on you and all those things. Because again, you are going to have breakdowns where your offense will have advantages just like you do in the chase. And so it's it's that repetition of decision-making in practice that will help you, you know, in the long run. And you and I are both really uh, into, you know, the game-like situations. And it's not easy to recreate those, right? It's almost like you're trying to, when you film a movie, a basketball movie, right? It, it never looks real, right? Because they, they don't want to, it's, it's a tenth take and they don't want to screw it up and they don't want to get hurt anybody or whatever. And that's the problem you have in those practice uh, situations. But this kind of defense, though, really, really ratchets that up. And it's it's just, it makes it really, it's just exciting to see from a lot of different standpoints. Yeah, so much of it is just figure it out situations where they've got to learn how to fix situations and figure out situations. And all good defenses do that. So I think all good coaches are somewhat creating those situations. But uh, I, I just love the concept of, that goes with this. And then uh, talk to us a little bit about what you see as future possibilities with this defense and then with maybe next level things that come from this. 
Well, I mean, interesting about future possibilities. I mean, I, I, the only future I'm kind of focusing in is on just, you know, getting finding more and more teams that want to run it. But yeah, I mean, I think the future ends up being like what I described before is is a, a world where you never know where the defense is going to play is in front of you or behind you. Love and it. that's powerful because I'm watching the, at, the, at the NAIA level, and those guys are spotting up from about 30 feet away. And I started thinking, you know, I don't know how you play zone uh, if guys are going to spot from 30, 35 feet. You cannot cover that ground well enough. So that's a problem for anything, you know, whatever uh, defense you're going to play. But at the very least, to disrupt it more, th- that would probably be what the future is going to be. Which is, which is, you know, I think really crazy and exciting in a way, right? And then remember, man-to-man has zone principles and zone has man-to-man principles. So they all start to bleed into each other. So it's in theory, you might end up just sort of having these kind of hybrid defenses that are sort of zone, sort of man. And, you know, you're not going to be able to call a two-guard front because you see a one-guard front, you know, defense, right? It's not so simple anymore like that. And by the way, if you see a two-guard front defense, you can do a two-guard front offense and make them basically play, play man. So uh, <laughs> that's a pretty little secret I'll throw out there. That's counter to everything we've ever talked about, Coach. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And, and, you know, and just another, another side, just remember, you can't do a dribble handoff, you know, with a guy behind you. Now, what might happen there is they might do the dribble handoff to the inside. Now that's kind of cool. I would love to see something like that. It's almost like a like a in, in football where they like the inside run kind of thing. You know, you can picture that, right? I'm dribbling toward the guy, and instead of him going to the outside of me where I hand off easy, I actually have he has to go underneath and I hand it off that way, and then he goes. That could be another interesting counter. I'd love to see just because to force an offense to do something so different like that, or to force them to go back to the '90s, you know, power you know uh, alignments. That that's exciting to me. When I used to run the amoeba defense in high school which is, you know, what Tarkanian ran at UNLV with Stacey Augman and all those guys. The, the other teams in our league would develop a, specific, a specialized offense to go against it. We only ran it 10, 11 times a game, but it was awesome to see that those teams had to spend time that week to put in a whole new offensive set to go against it because it was so disruptive to them. And, and by the way, you know, I always envision this defense as a thing that you you probably play 10, 12, 15 times a game tops. However, I suspect that there are going to be teams that, that my guys, my teams play against where you can run it for 20 times in a row because the other team just never solves it enough to, to take it off. So, but well, I, and I was going to ask you about that. Like you do see it as being a situational defense somewhat, but then it could be a base defense that becomes adapted the other way, right? Where you go more traditional when teams adapt to it. So it could be your base and then you go traditional as an adjustment. I mean, I can, I, yeah, you can never say never. So, I mean, I always felt it was going, it was not going to be a base defense, but, but I, I had gone back and forth and kind of agonized over it. I don't even know if it matters at this point, right? It's just it doesn't you know, matter. Thing. And that said, you know, in our, in the amoeba, it's a very hyper aggressive zone, and and you get like you start to have uh, trust in your teammates that are going to back you up when you pressure the ball. And it would bleed into our man-to-man. And so our man-to-man would start getting better and better and more pressure-filled because of that. And I, I, I choose to believe that the same thing's going to happen with Chase because obviously the inherent trust you have in your DAT and your teammates is even greater because it's a layup if they're not in the right spots. You know, the X5 isn't in the right spot, for instance. So I believe that that all these things will just continue to make the defense better and also just sort of change the culture around the defense. I think that's another big thing. When, when that team wanted to play another 15 minutes because after playing hard for two hours, I mean, I think that just tells you that we're tapping into something that they really want, want to do. And if you ever find anything that related to defense that, the, that your team wants to do more of, then you better do it. Player engagement, player enjoyment is a part of coaching, and that's a key part of coaching, in my opinion. Empowerment. 
empower the players, right? That's what's so scary to, I think, a lot of coaches. So there's coaches I, I have had on the show from, from England who are developing a whole new way of, you know, player-based coaching, and they want feedback from their players after every practice. Can you imagine some of the American coaches that we know, if you ask them, hey, would you sit down with all 12 of your players one-on-one -on -one after the practice for five minutes and let them tell you what you did wrong in that practice? Can you imagine what they would react to, how they'd react? <laughs> I, I know I wouldn't have been able to handle that, but you know what? Now I think I could. I think I've gotten to that place, but but how else could you? You would only get better as a coach from that. You would only get better, that's for sure. I know you've shared this with really high level people on people down to obviously youth level coaches and stuff like that. What has been the general feedback that you've got? Is it curiosity? Is it excitement? What is the general tone? So I've shown it to a bunch of NBA coaches. And it's ranged from all over the place. The general thing is like very skeptical and also like with this league, that would never work. But then after you talk to them for a while about it, they they tend to kind of get around to it. So a couple of coaches who I really respect, who everybody respects defensively, I kind of got them there by the end of the conversation. There's another NBA coach who like, you know, I, I, went, and I went to him because he's notorious for not being uh, tactful at all. And I'm like, fine, give me the non-tactful answers and whatever. And, you know, he's not <laughs> convinced at all. And it was really, you know, I, I guess rude is the word to letting me know it. But for the most part, everybody walks away at the very least, you know, stroking their chin and thinking, yeah, there's this is it really interesting. There's something here. And I know that the coach in New York, who I, I guess we're not going to say yet who it is because he wants to keep on the wraps. So they start playing guys. Yeah, he saw it immediately. And he's already seeing, even though they're not even getting all the way behind enough for my taste, instantly he's like, yes, this is going to be disruptive. We have a, a lot of athletes in length. So that's really going mean, to that's really going to help you when you have a team like that. That said, the point zone was developed by Dean Smith and Bob Spear at Air Force because they didn't have a lot of size and have a lot of speed. So in reality, what I'm what I'm using as a baseline there for the rotations is for a team that is, you know, disadvantaged athletically already. And so you could level the playing field a little bit more than maybe just trying to sit back in a two three zone and pray that they don't, you know, dissect you that way. So and plus, again, nobody wants to be on that team that the coach says, well, you guys aren't really good enough. So we're going to have to like, you know, really just play passive and try and slow it down and all these things that that's not, that's not basketball to me. I, I had that happen to me once in like eighth grade where we took the air out of the ball and it was the, it was single-handedly the worst experience I ever had in my life, but it also was damaging psychologically because it was, what was the coach telling us? So it's, you know, that you're not really good or that you're not good enough. And you know, that that's, that's a that damaging situation to be in. That would be a great situation for players to be able to give feedback to the coach about yeah. playing basketball. We don't want to play basketball where we hold the ball. It may seem cool for you. It's not cool for us. And America, let's get shot clocks in every state. What are we oh. waiting for? Well, do you want to join me? I, I just thought, sorry to think about that, of trying to figure out uh, how to create a national push to get shot clocks. Because I know it's about money, right? We have to raise enough money to get shot clocks for everybody. Coach Nick, Malaysia has shot clocks. I mean, okay. it's it's not about money in America. It's okay. about a will. If they want to do it, they'll do it. And I think a lot of coaches are holding on to an old view of the game. But decisions go up. Player enjoyment goes up. Every th aspect of the game goes up. The game's just better with shot clocks. There's no argument that I can think of any any other way. But well, Malaysia, Singapore, every country in the world plays with shot clocks. So okay. you can't tell me it's money. Fair enough. And by the way, it takes two, you know, to, to let a team – run the clock out, right? And not play like the, the defense needs to sit back too and let them do it. So with this defense, for instance, you couldn't do that. <laughs> and that would be exciting to me too, because you could eliminate those people who are trying to, to, you know, stall. 
Coach Nick, this is awesome. I love it. I love talking divergently with you. And uh, we've had many of those conversations in our time and we'll have more now that I'm living closer to you in LA area. So coach, where can they find more information on this? And where most importantly, can they go argue with you? Okay. Well, the argument part, the conversation is, is Twitter is still the place. I'm not going to call it whatever they call it now. That's at B-Ball Breakdown. In fact, B-Ball Breakdown is everything on YouTube. If you type in B-Ball, it'll autofill for you. But I'm, I do a lot of live coverage of the games. And so I take clips and we discuss and we show, you know, here's a guy who's dipping, here's not dipping on the shot. By the way, you know, we probably already had that conversation about shooting, but, you know, that's another whole uh, thing we got to discuss at some point. But Twitter, B-Ball Breakdown, and on YouTube, if you want to see the video of uh, the Chase Defense as I introduce it, it's called Chase Defense, all caps, You'll see it on there. It was, it was published on August 29th, and uh, it's got a whole ton of views. So, again, if you want to reach out to me and you're a coach who sounds interested in wanting to run this and join the uh, – it's almost 60 now, people across the world – then just, you know, you can email me, coachnick at bballbreakdown.com. We'll schedule a Zoom. And I'm trying to get out to some places too. If it's if I can make it work and it's not like horribly far, then we can maybe figure out where I can come out there and help. But yeah, I'm, I'm just – I am knee deep into my three-year plan to get this into the NBA. And this is the year one, and I'm trying to get as many people as I can who want to hear about it and, and run it. I cannot recommend it enough, coaches. There's not a better experience in my day than spending an hour or two talking basketball with Coach Nick. It's a fun experience. So don't hesitate to reach out to him. And Coach, thanks for sharing the game with us. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.